Hi, Raphael Bender here, founder of Breathe Education, and you're listening to the Pilates Elephants podcast. There are many things that are awesome about the Pilates industry. However, many of the practices that we take for granted are out of date, illogical, or just plain pseudoscientific. These are the elephants in the room, and I'm here to talk about them openly and honestly, and with a couple of F-bombs thrown in for good measure. Pilates Elephants is about debunking the myths and giving you science-based tools to become a better, happier, and more fearless teacher who really fucking knows your stuff. Hey Pilates Elephants listeners, great to be with you again. I am really excited to be here with Natalie Wilson. Natalie, welcome. Thanks, Raf. It's good to be here. Yeah, it's awesome to be with you. Uh, today we're going to talk about the topic of, and of course, if you're listening to this, you already know what the topic is because you read it on the podcast episode title, but for some reason we still feel the necessity to introduce the topic. What, a, what an archaic convention. wonder when we're going to lose that. Anyway, uh, today's topic is how you, Natalie Wilson, rediscovered your passion for teaching. So um, before we get into that, can you just introduce yourself and tell us who you are and where you are and what you do? Sure, yeah. Uh, my name is Natalie Wilson. I am a Pilates teacher in Seattle, Washington in the United States. I teach Pilates at a local studio and I also teach Pilates at a local hospital working with people who have uh, neurological conditions like multiple sclerosis. Mm. And... So this is, you know, the reason that we're having this conversation is because we had several conversations off air um, over the last year or two, um, and in one of them, you shared that you had lost and then rediscovered your passion for Pilates, and I can't remember if it was you or me, but one of us or both of us thought, oh, that'd be a great <laughs> conversation to have on air, um, because it, it seems like, I, I, I agree with you when you say, because you said off air just before, that probably there are a lot of other people out there, maybe in your same boat, who uh, are certified instructors and maybe have been teaching for a while or maybe have never taught after they're being certified, but who basically were super passionate and that's why they became instructors, but now are feeling out of touch with that, you know, that love and that joy of teaching. So can, yeah, can you tell us your story? Tell us a story from... Like what were, what were you doing before you became a Pilates instructor and what inspired you to become a Pilates instructor and then how did it sort of lose its vigor for you? Sure. I found Pilates around 2012. I had two very small children. I was living in, we just moved from Portland, Oregon to Seattle, Washington and I had left my full-time job my background is in social work and um, specifically working with teens who are in the foster care system. And in 2012, I found myself as a really, really bored stay-at-home mom. I was really, really grumpy all the time, no energy. And um, I had a gym membership that allowed me to put my kids in daycare for two hours at a space. And I was going there every day just to get some time to myself. And I had found a Matt Pilates class and I started taking that class. And for the first time 
since before having kids, I finally felt confident in my body again. I felt strong. Um, I know I'm not the only one who has felt like having kids was a really disembodying experience. When you have kids, your whole life revolves around kids. Your body is no longer yours. That's how I felt. You know, I was just being poked and prodded all the time. My kids needed things for me. And Pilates just became a lifeline for me. And I loved it so much that I was going regularly and just feeling really good, feeling really strong. And I had been telling myself that I, w- that I was so inspired by my own experience with the movement that when, um, when the time was right, I was going to become a Pilates teacher because I just wanted to share with people the experience that I had just finding my way back into my own body and finding my way back into confidence. So yeah, in, uh, let's see, 2015, my uh, second child uh, went to full-time kindergarten and I enrolled in a one-year-long comprehensive Pilates certification program here in Seattle. And that's pretty much it. I became a Pilates teacher about, it took me a little bit longer than a year. It took me about a year and several months. So I became fully qualified in early 2017 and I've been teaching ever since. So I went for the childcare, stayed for the Pilates. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Um, I know I wasn't the only one. There are a lot of us who were doing that. um, All right. And so, you know, that is actually a genuinely inspirational story. So where did the inspiration sort of disappear for you? how How did things change? I think... In order to understand the difference between doing and teaching, you have to go through it. You know, I think sometimes, and and I know this from from other friends who have done the training program with me, there's a difference between liking doing Pilates and liking teaching Pilates. And for me, I was in a cohort of, of, there were so many people who had so much more experience than me. Uh, They were dancers and massage therapists, yoga instructors, physical therapists. I just felt like, I, I, I think I was, I felt like the weakest link. I was the least experienced and I, I didn't know anything. I, I felt like I just walked off the street into a Pilates studio and just decided to become a Pilates teacher and everybody else around me, all of my classmates had a really good idea and a reason why they wanted to become Pilates teachers. And I was just like, well, Pilates is fun. I just want to, you know, I just want to share that, that kind of fun. And the program was really, really hard. And it, it had been a long time since I'd been in a school setting. Um, It'd been a long time since I was at university and grad school. Uh, And being back in an educational setting, just really set off all of my deeply embedded insecurities about wanting to do well. And you know, just getting all A's and passing all of the tests. And I just felt like I had to work twice as hard as all of the, all of my classmates because I just felt like I was the least experienced. And so I think that, you know, like if you ask me, when did I lose my passion? To be honest, I don't know that I ever really had a passion. I feel like I have had imposter syndrome from the moment 
I walked into my training program just really not feeling like I was going to be able to cut it. And of course I did. I did pass, but I was always so worried about being left behind just because I felt so inexperienced compared to my peers. That, what you just said surprised me quite a bit because 60 seconds before that, you just finished telling me how Pilates like basically, you know, saved your sanity and your self-esteem and your joy in living. And then like with the next breath, you told me that you felt like everybody else had a much more valid reason to do Pilates, to teach Pilates than you did. And you didn't have a really good reason. I'm like, for fuck's sake, like what better reason is I there? <laughs> I know. I was so focused. And, you know, I think that this, um, I, I have a Pilates friend and colleague who once said, you know, Pilates uh, self-selects. And I think mm-hmm. what she means by that is that we tend to have a lot of perfectionists. And I think for mm-hmm. me, enrolling in that program, it just brought out so much anxiety for me about doing well. It was an area I've always done well in school. It was never an issue, but I've always picked things that were within my wheelhouse and this Pilates training, and I've said this from the very beginning, this Pilates training was so completely out of my wheelhouse. It surprised, I surprised myself that I enrolled. I remember um, I remember telling people that I was going to become a Pilates teacher and they just kind of cocked their head and was like, oh, that's neat. <laughs> you know, like it just, it just seems so out yeah. of character. And is, do you, um, you know, I've, I've, I've had that and I've had, uh, I've talked to other people who've had that because uh, uh, I guess, do you think that people, you know, people around you perceived it as kind of a step down in the sort of social hierarchy because you had, you know, you were a degree qualified professional as a social worker and now you're kind of stepping into a, le- you know, quote, lesser skilled role as a Pilates instructor? You know, I don't, I don't know. I don't know that that would be fair to say that. I feel like everybody around me was super supportive. My husband, everybody that I told, they were super supportive. But it was truly something that um, wasn't, it just wasn't something that I was ever trained to do. I think in some ways, and, and I felt the same way too. I feel like maybe I wanted to become a Pilates teacher just as it as a hobby or a side hustle, something to keep me busy and something to give me an identity outside of just being a mom. Yeah, which is a totally valid reason to do something. (laughs) Right, right. All right, so you you were, is it true to say that you were feeling genuinely inspired before the training because you had this really life-changing experience when you, you know, just thought you were just getting free childcare basically, but then you, through Pilates, you rediscovered your sense of strength and joy in movement and empowerment physically and you know, time away from your kids where no one's poking and prodding you, or maybe the Pilates instructor was poking and prodding you, I don't know. But um, anyway, it would, that was a genuinely empowering experience for you, and you wanted to share that with others. You wanted to share that same, you know, to give other people that same experience. And to me, that's that's like basically the definition of a calling. You know, that's a vocation, you know. and But then, you know, day one of your teacher training, your insecurities just are totally triggered, and you start thinking, oh, I'm the only one here who doesn't have a legit reason for being here and I'm the, I'm the least qualified person in the room and everybody else knows everything and I know nothing. 
and and from there you kind of questioned why you were doing it and you think only started sort of second guessing yourself and thinking, oh, maybe I just want to do this as a hobby or maybe I'm, is, is that what happened? I don't, there was never a second guess. I knew that I wanted to be a Pilates teacher, but I also felt like it was going to be the hardest thing I had ever done. And I would, I would tell people all the time, it's, I'm just not natural. I'm, I'm not naturally a good student in this. I, I, I am struggling to get things to stick. The anatomy was awful. I mean, I've been in your anatomy class and you've heard me say like, I until I took your class, I just didn't get it. I didn't understand it. It never stuck. Um, it, school had always been easy for me up until that point. And this training was not easy for me. It did not come naturally. And that really bothered me. I, mm. I, I never questioned that I was going to finish it. I was going to finish it. Um, but I kept telling people, this is harder than grad school. This is hard, the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, and I did. I worked so hard. I practically lived at the studio that whole year, just practicing and memorizing things. And, you know, I, you know, I know nothing. I don't even know what the name of the training was that you did. And I don't want to know. But So I know nothing about any of the particulars of the training. But I now... I recognize what you just said as an as a reflection on the quality of the teaching, not on the quality of your ability to learn. So, you know, you found the training harder than grad school. To me, that says that the training was taught way worse than <laughs> grad school because teaching has a massive influence on people's learning, on students' learning. And you are a very smart human. You know, you got through grad school, for God's sakes, and you know, yet you found this really challenging. To me, that says, doesn't really say anything about you. <laughs> it says something about the training itself. So anyway, I want to, I want to move on from that, but, um, yeah, I, I just, I guess I wanted to, to share that, uh, reflection. So can I actually, can I say yeah, something real quick about please. that? Well, first of all, two things. I am a grad school dropout. I kept getting pregnant in grad school. So I just want to make sure for the record, I did not finish grad school, okay. but I was there. I was there and I studied for about a year. Um, and, you know, I, yeah, I, I just want to say that for the training program that I was in, what they were doing, and I think you know this from your own original training, they were, this training program is I think quite similar to many, many training programs, apart from Breathe, many, many training programs, at least in America, uh, where it is just you memorize anatomy, you memorize exercises, and then they just send you off. That's, that's not um, specific to the training program that I was in. I think that's just really specific to a lot of training programs in the US. Yeah, and that's that's a description of poor quality education. Fair. All right, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, so basically you came out of the training you were you were certified and you were questioning. So, yeah, t so tell me more about your your mental state when you finished the training and what and what happened next after that. I finished the program and I start, I actually started working. I grabbed a few jobs even before I officially finished my certificate. And I was, I, I, you know, on the outside, I was doing fine. I was teaching great classes. People were giving me wonderful feedback. 
But like I said, I think the imposter syndrome that started off when I enrolled in the program, it never went away. I, even though I was getting good feedback, it was really overshadowed by feeling like I wasn't good enough. I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, I was afraid that I was going to hurt people. I was afraid that I was going to over or under challenge people. Um, I was constantly in an anxious state, even when I finished a session or a shift and everything went really well and people left happier than when they came in. I, all of that, all of the success that I had was really overshadowed by just imposter syndrome and anxiety and just feeling really burnt out and feeling a lot of dread. I just was constantly dreading going to work because I thought, oh my God, I'm going to forget my program. Someone's going to come in injured or pregnant. Um, some new person's going to come in and I'm going to have no idea what to do with them. So I, I just felt like that was my life for the last, I guess, since 2017. I'm fascinated by what you said about feeling burnt out because uh, I might be wrong, but my impression was you were only teaching part-time. Yes. Yep. So where did that come from, do you think? The burnout, I think, just came from mental exhaustion. You know, just, and, you know, I, I've heard this from other um, other guests that you've had on the podcast, the, this expectation, and, and I like to, I like to distinguish Pilates, you know, just general Pilates versus versus the the new stuff, the new way that I have learned. And I feel like the general Pilates culture is one where you have to know everything. You have to notice everything. You have to be the expert in all things. You're expected to fix things. Um, you have to talk all the time. There should be no empty space. And it's exhausting. Yeah, I was working very, very part-time. And a lot of the reason why I continued to work part-time and I kept turning down work was because I just felt like I have too much on my plate. The, the, the shifts that I already have are enough for me. I have, I have more than enough to occupy my brain and to you know be the perfect instructor that I felt like I needed to be um, in order for me to be successful. So yeah, yeah the burnout the was real. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't doubt it for a second. And I think that um, I think a, a lot of people, possibly most people, misunderstand the concept of burnout. And a lot of people view, mistakenly view burnout, I think, as uh, a result, you know, usually of just working too hard, where in reality, I think there are, you know, multiple factors that contribute to the experience of burnout. They're to do with, uh, you know, uh, feeling um, uh, disempowered in the workplace, feeling... Uh, like uh, you don't know if what you're doing is is making a difference for people, um, f uh, you know. So there are, there are, there are so there are there are many you know there are a bunch of other factors. I don't want to have a long talk about burnout, but yeah, burnout. And so and so you know, if that's true, you know, if burnout is a result of sort of mental anxiety combined with you know multiple other factors, then simply like you know more self care isn't the solution, you know, like going for a spa treatment or getting a massage or meditating. It's like none of that shit's going to help no. <laughs> the fundamental problem. And even cutting down your hours obviously isn't going to help in, in your situation. 
So yeah, I think a lot of people mistake that idea of burnout as a signal that they need to do less. Whereas actually, I think it's some, it's a, for most of us, it's a signal that we need to become more empowered you know, in our work situation. And that can mean different things for different people. But um, yeah. Uh, all right. So it's fun. It's, you know, it, it's intriguing to me this, this situation that you found yourself in where outwardly you're doing so well. You know, people are loving your classes, patting you on the back, going, Natalie, that was awesome. You're really making a difference. Everything's awesome. And you were almost like taking that as evidence that you were doing a shit job, you know? <laughs> Well, and there's just a lot of pressure, right? Because I think in some ways, um, when people say, oh, you're doing a great job, I just feel like, oh, shit, that means I better bring it next time. Like, And that yeah. also is burnout. That causes burnout, where if you're getting a lot of good praise, a lot of positive feedback, there's so much pressure to keep that <sighs> going. And that that's a whole nother podcast. I feel like we could just talk about burnout. I mean, and another way to put it and in the social work field, we call it compassion fatigue. And, you know, I work huh. with people who have a lot of um, medical conditions and special needs. And that is a really dangerous place to be. If you're working with people who um, have special needs is to have compassion fatigue to not, you know, to be at a place where you're just phoning it in and, and going to work and, being, I mean, I don't know that I was ever resentful, but I definitely just felt exhausted and, and nervous all the time. Huh. Well, I, you just totally reminded me because I'd completely forgotten that you have a freaking degree in social work. So tell me your understanding of burnout. What's your perspective on, on that whole phenomenon? Um, to me, burnout really just means not giving a shit that you just stop giving a shit and it, it and it shows in many different ways and in, in, in the social work field, um, which is work that I've done longer than I did Pilates in the social work field, it, it comes out as not really doing your job, showing up to work and collecting a paycheck and not paycheck and not really doing your job, not returning phone calls or emails, that kind of thing. Um, in the Pilates world, I feel like I have been to classes where, the instructor is just saying things and they're far, far away. Like they're just, you know, and you've probably yeah. seen or been to classes like that too. Yeah. That I see that as burnout. Um, yeah. And again, I really, really like your point that fixing burnout has nothing to do with self-care. I, I feel like, you know, Pilates is a part-time job for me. I have plenty of time. My kids are in school. My husband is in the office. I have plenty of time and opportunity for self-care. I self-care all the time and it did not fix it. And I think that that's a really important point that you brought up. And it, I never, it never occurred to me to think about it in that way, but you're right. Yeah. Um, when I, uh, I experienced burnout in, at the end of 2015, when I had owned my studio for 10 years and, uh, I was feeling burnt out. Like I was feeling all of the things. I was disengaged. I was going through the motions. I was saying the words, but my mind was elsewhere. I was not returning emails or calls. Like I was doing all of the things you just described. And it was my business. You know, I was the owner of the business. I had co-owners as well. And, um, but I, w I was the CEO. I was managing the business. And I went away with my wife uh, over Christmas and we were sitting there and I was just saying, oh, I feel so shit. I feel so burnt out. And 
and I read a bunch of I'd read a bunch of books uh, on burnout because I'll you know if 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 I if something grabs my attention I'd go and educate myself about it. So I downloaded a bunch of ebooks and Kindles and things, some research, and I learned that I can't remember them now, but there were five dimensions to burnout. One was low autonomy, one was not feeling recognised for your work, another one was feeling what you do doesn't make much difference to anyone. You know, there, there, there are a bunch of dimensions to it, and one of them was fatigue, but but that was only one of five, you know. And so the, the, the message that I took away was like, well, rest doesn't cure burnout because, yeah, you go away for a holiday, you sleep all day, it's all great. Then you're back at the office at 9am, by 9.15 you feel burnt out again. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like it, it's, the, it's the situation, not your energy levels that are the problem. The energy levels are a res- are a symptom, not a cause right. of, of the problem. Um, and uh, so I went away, you know, came back, still felt burnt out. And, you know, my wife said to me, like, what, what would you do if you could do anything? I'm like, oh, I'd sell this business and start an, edu- an education business. And she looked at me and said, well, you've already got an education business. Why don't you just sell this business and run the education business? I was like, oh. And <laughs> so I did. And it's like, Holy shit, that was the absolute fucking best decision of all the life decisions I've ever made. Like, th- that one was number one. Like, that has just been so in- – I feel so inspired every day now. I love what I do. It's like I work twice as hard, but it doesn't fatigue me at all. You know, it's like it's amazing – how much energy you can find when what you're doing is in alignment with and feeds, you know, who you want to be and, and the way you, you know, want to uh, help people in the world. So anyway, uh, yeah, I, th- I, I think we're in furious agreement that burnout is kind of a psychological phenomenon where you basically check out because you are, you have overwhelmed yourself with trying too hard and caring too much and it's, you don't feel like that's worked. And right. so you basically just metaphorically throw up your hands and go, fuck it, you know. I'm just yeah, it's to- a defense mechanism. Yeah. I think you have to do that in order to protect yourself. And I certainly felt like I needed to protect myself. Right. Yeah. All right. And so that was, was that the low ebb? Yeah. Well, I guess, I guess the burnout kind of really, hit the fan when the pandemic started. Um, Everybody went online, you know this part, everybody went online, including um, all of the classes that I taught. And I stopped working at the studio during the pandemic, but I continued to work at the hospital and we did online classes. And I think for me, that's where it really hit the fan. I, I, truly love all of my clients and I just have a really really soft spot for my hospital clients but I was finding that I just didn't feel like I was going to be able to serve them online I was not prepared I didn't know I mean nobody knew how to really teach online live we all had to figure that out in real time Um, but I got to a point where you know I I was working with people with with special needs and we were work we were working in person and I felt like okay I can't help them some of them need help taking off their shoes some of them need help getting down to the mat like it was terrifying for me to even consider teaching this hospital class these hospital shifts online knowing 
that I just wasn't prepared for it. And that's when I just felt like I really hit my low point was in the pandemic and just trying to figure out on my own, how do I best serve these people that are relying on me for, you know, good quality classes. And here I am like in a pandemic, not knowing what to do. And, and even more so like not in the environment that I'm used to teaching in, um, so that I can actually do my job. So that's when things got really, really bad was in the pandemic. Okay. I mean, you know, I can, I can identify with that. Uh, I think you, like you said, we all went through some version of that. Sounds like you had a lot less support than you could have. Um, and that's, that's been the feedback that I've received from all of my friends who are teachers in the public school system here in Australia is that or the university system is that they were just thrown and gone, okay, there's Zoom, go teach. You know, that, that was the extent of the, of the training. Um, and, you know, consequently, uh, you know, people felt completely overwhelmed and inadequate and just didn't know what to do, basically. So, all right. So, since then, you've, you know, things have got better. Yes. <laughs> so, um so I'd like to, I'd like, yeah, I'd like to ask you like what's, you know, what sparked that, what sparked the upward trend to start? So there you are at rock bottom wondering about how you're going to teach someone online who literally can't take their own shoes off. Um, and yeah, so how did, what, what, what was the, what was the, the catalyst for the, for the, for your onward journey? Um, it started when I, I was looking for, I was just looking for ideas. I was looking online. I was listening to podcasts. I just felt like I needed to tap into anything, any kind of inspiration to help me teach better, to get ideas for class programming. And I happened to come across Pilates Elephants and it ruined my life <laughs> in in all the best ways, in all the best ways. Um, you know, I, in order for me to really talk about the up, I really need to talk a little bit more about the down. And part of that down, part of the down is the, just what I like to think of as the traditional Pilates culture, probably in America, possibly everywhere else where Everything is based on alignment, biomechanics. It's very medicalized. And, um, you know, there's a lot of talk about neutral spine and posture. And I work with people who have lots of physical stuff going on. And so for me, a lot of what I was researching was, okay, what are some exercises to help people with their posture? What are exercises to help people you know, um, get more mobility through their spines. And I was just innocently looking for that kind of information. And I stumbled across the Pilates Elephants podcast. And I think the first, as I was looking through the episodes, I saw something like, you know, imposture. And I thought, oh, what? <laughs> what is going on? And so, you know, just innocently started to listen to your podcasts 
And like, a, like a young child just innocently stumbling across the pornography channel or something. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And it definitely felt very taboo because I'm looking around thinking, um, is anybody else seeing this? Like, and I remember listening to a few of the podcasts and I, at the time that I, at the time that I found your podcast, Raf, I, I think there were a good number of episodes and, and I feel like, I guess I would say like season one of your podcast was really about myth busting and all of the things that I had been taught in my Pilates training and not just in my Pilates training, but just things that I had absorbed over the last, what, four years before I found Pilates elephants, everything that I had absorbed, your podcast was saying, that's not true. <laughs> um, and I'm looking around like, holy shit, like, are you guys seeing this? Like, did you, what is happening? I'm texting my friend saying, I just found the most amazing podcast saying things that what we are learning is just not true. And I don't, I, I don't, I love it. Like what is happening? Um, I, and I think really for the last, since I started my training, my original training, I, I had all of these little seeds of doubt and questions and things that I was too afraid to ask, things that didn't feel right, but because I was the least experienced person in the room, because I felt like I had no background to fall on, I had no clout or authority to, to question anything. And I just accepted everything that I was taught as fact. And I feel like that the podcast was like sunshine, water, fertilizer <laughs> to all of these little seeds of doubt that I had. And I just... I went down the rabbit hole. I started to, after listening to your podcast, I, you know, I was, you were dropping names like Greg Lehman and some other researchers and physiotherapists that you follow and that you admire. And so I started following them and listening to their podcast. I just became insatiable. Like I was insatiable trying to get more information, doing my own research, figuring out is this posture matter? Does neutral spine matter? Is load more important than form? I mean, I was, I was out of control, but it felt so good for the first time in my whole career, I felt like, oh my goodness, I I had all of these little doubts. I just had no idea that this is what I was feeling. And it was just perfectly articulated by your podcast. And so that kind of leads to, you know, I was telling you uh, before we recorded that um, I one of the points with one of the ways that I found my passion was that I finally found my people. Like I realized with the podcast that, oh my gosh, there are other people there are more like who, yeah. who are like me, who are thinking like this. And it's, this is, I found a community. And I think for me, that was such a huge relief. That's really what I felt when I found your podcast. And when I started doing my own research, questioning all of the things that I was wondering with my prior training, not just with my original training program, but with all of the little adjunct trainings that I'd taken since. Um, it was, I just felt relief and I felt gratitude and I finally felt like I had a community. Mm. So that was step that was, one. That was our experience also, actually. Chloe and, and me, like we started this podcast, we just used to have these phone chats and rant on about, you know, untruths in the Pilates industry. 
And then one day we just decided to record it as a podcast because we were talking about it anyway. We might as well record it. And we just thought no one's going to fucking want to listen to this <laughs> shit. And we were so wrong. Like so many people want to listen to this. We Like this week or last week, we just passed 200,000 total downloads. It's insane for a, you know, Pilates podcast. Right. You know, like who would have thought it? And so I think the big, you know, thing for us is like, no, a lot of people think like this, possibly the majority. Um, and we used we used to think, no, we're, the, we're just the weirdos. No one, you know, no one else has these thoughts. It's like, just like you were thinking that, you know. And so I found my tribe through this podcast as well, because I didn't know all of you guys were out there thinking, just like you didn't know that all of the rest of everybody was out there thinking it. Yeah. So uh, I think this has been a really uh, magical you know, platform, this podcast, for me and for Chloe, I know as well, as for you and for everybody listening, or hopefully most of you listening, um, that we have found a community that's like, yeah, you're not alone. Lots yeah. of other people have these same questions, <laughs> have these same yeah. feelings, have these same experiences. Yeah. Um, the other thing that really struck me about what you said there, because I can so identify, is that what you described as that kind of insatiable, like unsatisfiable, you know, thirst for new knowledge. And, and it's like, I totally have experienced that. I experience it constantly, constantly, but I like the way you described it was so powerful that, you know, you said these little seeds of doubt, you know, were inside you, but I, I'm thinking it's more like, I'm, I'm not sure what the metaphor is, but I, I've, see them rather than seeds I see them as like little empty places inside you that hadn't been nourished that hadn't been filled and then you discover and you'd been given this like little mean little you know meal that didn't you know fill up the the empty place inside and all of a sudden you discover there's like no there's Greg Lehman there's Adam Meekins there's Sci-Hub there's Google Scholar there's and all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, it's a smorgasbord. It's all you can eat. <laughs> and you, you are just, you know, taking it all in. And, and that is such an exciting, you know, intellectual stimulating place to be when you discover that's like, oh my God, there's so much knowledge about, you know, this stuff. It was unbelievable. I had never, I mean, it, it was the first time that I realized what a bubble I was living in within the Pilates community um that i didn't realize i i was totally i mean i think you you know you've heard what is that expression uh fish are the last to understand water or yeah. something like that that's how i felt i was just like holy shit there's a whole world out there that doesn't think the way that i think and that made me so happy i was so relieved and i think i was telling you again off air that was not the response of every person that I shared the podcast with. There are people who felt really threatened and really upset um, and defense defensive about it. But for me, I was just like, this is exactly what I needed. Um, and, and, you know, I want to take my hat off to you at this point and anybody still listening uh, after listening to more than one episode of this podcast. Uh, also, I take my hat off to you because th what you experienced there, what you described of, feeling elated or excited by uh, learning that there's a whole world of people who think completely differently, who, who see the world differently. There's a whole alternative set of facts 
from the ones that you've you know, been exposed to, that you found that exciting is a hallmark of something called cognitive agility, which basically means the ability to change your thinking when presented with new information. And that is, in fact, I was doing recently some research on psychological resilience when I was writing my book. And uh, that is, you know, I'm sure as you know, Natalie, uh, cognitive agility is one of the hallmarks of psychological resilience is the ability for people to adapt to new situations, new ways of thinking, take different perspectives, you know, change strategies when something's not working, etc. And so uh, if you're listening to this, hats off to you, uh, because obviously those who aren't interested in new perspectives <laughs> uh, have already tuned out. <laughs> so um, yeah. Good on, good on you, Natalie, and good on all of you listening. Thanks, Raf. But you know, the thing is too, like the the stuff that you're sharing is not new, right? No, like, it's fucking <laughs> two thing. decades old a lot of the time. And that for me, I mean, outside of like relief, I was just, I, there was a period of time. So, you know, when you think about like the grief process, right? Like there's denial and there's anger and all of those things. Like I was, I'd never went through denial. I was like, oh, this is amazing. I, I, I got to learn more about this. But I did get, there was a period of time that I got really angry because I just thought, how could you have done this to me? Like, and how could I have done this to myself? Like how, how as a, you know, college educated person, how could I not have known to ask questions and, and think critically about this that I just, wholly accepted everything that was being given to me and not really even thinking about whether or not it was true or whether or not it was up to date. And, you know, a lot of the stuff that everything that you have, that you and Chloe brought out in the beginning, especially that wasn't new information that was right. always out there. Yeah. Um, just people either didn't know about it or chose to just ignore it. I don't, I don't know, honestly. Yeah. I think it's a bit of both. Um, yeah. So, I mean, there's still heaps out there that I don't, aren't aware of yet. I'm sure that's, you know, been around for two decades and I'm still doing it wrong. Uh, but I think the difference with you and me and hopefully most of our listeners is when you when you learn about something that it's like, oh shit, I was wrong about that. It's like, great. Now you just change your mind and you're right again. Um, all right. So you're, you know, your brain is exploding, you're drinking in all this knowledge from all of these different sources, you're, you know, uh, educating yourself voraciously, uh, you know, tell me what, what happened next. What happened next um, was that I was given the opportunity to enroll in uh, Breathe's certificate or Cert 4 program um, to become a Pilates teacher. <laughs> So that's what I did. That would have been August 2021. I think I found your podcast late summer of 2020, thereabouts. So between that time when I found your podcast and I enrolled in your Cert 4, I really was just doing my own research uh, listening to your podcasts and just trying out little things in my teaching, just, you know, ex uh, external cueing. One of the very, very first things I stopped doing um, in my teaching 
was uh, cueing neutral spine. Or I'm sorry, not neutral spine, cueing core activation, set your core, <laughs> inhale, set your core, that kind of thing. That's one of the very first things that I stopped doing. And it's so funny because my students noticed. <laughs> they noticed right away. They're just like, oh, what's going on here? You're no longer cueing our core. And I'm thinking, I said that like five million times. I, you know, if you want to do that, you should just go ahead and do it. So yeah, between the time that I found the podcast and I enrolled in the Cert 4, I was just trying little bits and things, things that I, suggestions that you and Chloe were making in the podcast. I was testing them out, trying them out in my own teaching, still so, not getting enough of what I needed, um, what, not what knowing really, what I was doing. What really strikes me there, sorry to interrupt, but just this really grabbed me in what you said, and I don't want to let it go, is that like the contrast between, so what I'm interested in is what changed in you, you know, not, not to do with what we said or, or anything like that, but what changed in you from in your training where you basically walk in the door, look around, everyone else is a dancer, you're like, oh, fuck, I'm an idiot. I know nothing. I'm the lowest person here. I've got, can't have an opinion, you know, and, and to have, and you know, going into massive imposter syndrome where basically you knew that everything you're doing was wrong, but people are going to find you out sooner or later to then just like reading something on the internet and going, oh, I'll give that a go. You know, I'll, I'll stop queuing core. I'll, you know, teach Mrs. Jones not to use neutral spine. It's like, how did you go from that to the other? What, what happened in you? I feel like I finally had a place to belong and that I wasn't going to be the only one to do it. And I think sometimes too, when you're part of a culture or dare I say cult, um, you know, to step out of line is really not what you should be doing. And I mean, I have to be really honest. I don't feel like the training program nor the colleagues that I work with ever put me in a box. I put, mm -hmm. I kept myself yep. in that box. Yep. Yep. And oftentimes, and, oftentimes, sorry again, oftentimes, you know, when we perceive like social pressure to do a certain thing or not do a certain thing, often that's just in our own mind. Like other people aren't thinking about you going, oh, you better do this. They're, they're just going about their own lives, doing their own thing, yeah. not, not thinking about you at all. Yeah. Yeah. I put myself in that box and I feel like finding the podcast, learning about all of these ideas that are myths that we can let go. I finally gave myself permission to let some of those things go and just kind of peeking my way out of that box and, and kind of testing things out. And oh, nobody died. I was not struck by thunder if, you know, I didn't cue neutral or cue the breath or cue the core. So it was just those little things. And I think it, you know, it, it definitely feels like leaving the nest, right? Like I was mm -hmm. just in this nest. I wasn't happy in it. Um, but I was too afraid to, to take a step out. Yeah. So just ha giving myself permission to do that in little steps, um, kind of got the ball rolling. And that's because you felt that you weren't the only one and therefore right. that it, it was kind of normal or, or socially acceptable somehow. Um, yeah, that you, there are other people doing thinking. that already. Yeah. 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 One of the thing, another thing I want to ask you is because, you know, when a lot of people, like I, I get it 
I probably get like 30 or 40 DMs a day on, on Instagram and a significant portion of those are from people who listen to the podcast, especially, you know, that first kind of year and a bit of worth of episodes where we do do a lot of myth busting and people going like, okay, great. You've taught me what's not true. So now what do I do instead? You know, it's like, okay, well, basically everything I'm doing is fucking wrong. So, <laughs> so like, what the fuck do I do? And, and you know, we, we, we do, I do try very hard and Chloe and I did try very hard to give people things to do in, you know, it's like, here's what to do instead of queuing muscles. Um, you know, we talk about external queuing and queuing about queuing things that are related to the result or the movement that are outside the body and stuff like that. So we do try and do that. But I think it, it's like when your whole kind of professional ad- identity and all your assumptions about what's true in the world as it relates to that have been built on, you know, certain assumptions and then you're like, oh, yeah, no, those are all wrong. It's like suddenly there's this kind of nihilistic void that a lot of people can fall into and go, well, fuck, you know, if, if I'm not here to, to assess people's posture, cue their core, tell them to keep neutral, make sure their knees are in alignment, whatever, it's like, well, what the, what, what's the good of me? Like, I've learned all these things. Those, those are my skills, you know? <laughs> like, so, so what, what's the value in me? What am, I, what am I selling if I'm not selling alignment and core activation and blah, blah, blah? It's like, well, what the fuck? What's my product? And, and you seem to have like jumped over that puddle. So yeah, tell me about that. Yeah. You know, I can't take credit for it completely. I feel like, so, um, I I think it's the orientation week lecture. I never thought about my product until, um, I was in that, uh, a week lecture with Charmin. And I think one of the first questions he asked was, you know, as a Pilates teacher, what is your product? And, and hint, hint, it's not Pilates. And I just thought, Oh my God, what, what? And, um, it took me a while to figure it out because, you know, going back to your point, Raph, about, um, this idea of like, okay, well, if I'm doing everything wrong, what the hell am I doing here? What am I good for? Those were actual conversations I had with, my Pilates friends who I roped into listening to the podcast with me, you know, they listened along and shout out to Joy and Lindy um, here in Seattle who have, I, I totally just roped them into it. And just, we had lots of conversations about and debates about all of these things. And um, I remember at one point, Joy was saying to me, well, okay, I, I'm on board, but now what, right? Like now what, what does it mean for me? And I don't, I didn't have the answer back then. And I don't think it was until I was going through the certificate program that I was really able to redefine my role to, and, and, and to reprioritize what I was, you know, what my goals were as a teacher. Um, and at the end of the day, I, for me, my definition as a Pilates teacher who doesn't cue the core, who doesn't cue breath, who cares very little about alignment unless the alignment is hurtful or not good. Um, You know, at the end of the day, I feel like my role is to um, empower people through movement and, and really to just build a therapeutic alliance. And without sounding too clinical about it, just therapeutic alliance really just means for me just having a relationship with, um, with my students that they just enjoy coming to class 
as opposed to, you know, doing a recording on YouTube or on Pilates anytime, like there's a reason why they come to my class instead of doing a non-live free class or even a subscription. And yeah, you know, just being a cheerleader for my students, helping them give options. I think that was something that Greg Lehman actually was saying too. I don't even remember what podcast it was, but, and I don't remember if it was with Pilates Elephants, but um, I think he addressed it really nicely. And he said, you know, well, what is the point of, what is the point of being a trainer if you're not really going to correct people? And he said, well, it's to give, help people, um, give people options. And I thought, yeah, that's exactly right. Like, I'm here to give people options. And I know for me too, like I'm a Pilates teacher. I can teach myself, but I would prefer not to. I would much rather take a class yeah. from yeah. Uh, from somebody else. Um, two things I want to tease out there. One is what you said there uh, right at the start about you see your role as helping people uh, become empowered through movement. And I just thought like, just like you did. You know, that's, that's why you got into the, into the first, in the first place. Like that's, right. that was the first, that was the genesis of it all. So you're now back in touch with that original right. inspiration. So it's like Paulo Coelho, the, the alchemist where you've gone, for, gone on this great big uh, quest and journey and you, then it's led you back to exactly where you yeah. started, but now you see exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, and, and, uh, okay. And giving people options. And I think, uh, you know, what you said at the end there about, um, you know, why people come to your class live and, you know, instead of doing a free one on YouTube or, you know, whatever, uh, well, I actually was just having a DM with, with an instructor in, I think she's in Italy, um, uh, at the moment. And, and she was saying like, uh, I, you know, I love it when my clients send me photos of their workouts and they're feeling so inspired and they're sending me photos of them hiking up mountains that they couldn't hike up before and stuff and I feel like well uh, I'm not practicing Pilates myself I feel shit because like look at all the great things I'm doing for my clients but I'm not doing that for myself why can't I do that and I said to her well do you have a coach do you have a Pilates instructor like your clients have like is there somebody that's motivating cheerleading you know encouraging you like you motivate cheerlead and encourage them and she was like uh no I'm like well (laughs) there's your there's your problem right there right and so I think, of course, that's the value that we provide. Like, you know, just being in a room with a Cadillac or a reformer doesn't mean that instantly you, you know, have access to all of the wonders of Pilates. It's because, like, actually it's the human interaction a lot of the time that provides the magical spark that actually makes it all, you know, work. So, yeah, I think that's the value that we provide as instructors is Pilates only works when you do it. And if, if, if you're just sitting in there in your, at, in your lounge room watching Pilates anytime, it's super easy not to do it. Yeah. Well, and, you know, props to Breathe for even posing the question because I don't know that I, I, I've been to other trainings and that's just never asked, but it's so obvious, right? It's so obvious. Like, what is the product? I mean, it, it just, it can't just be Pilates because... You can get Pilates anywhere. You can get it literally for free on YouTube. There must be right. tens of thousands of hours of free oh. Pilates workouts. Yeah. Yeah. So why aren't people just doing those? Well, obviously because there's something missing in those, right. even though 
they're technically great workouts. Right. It, there's something missing, which is the the encouragement, the support, the accountability, the motivation, the options, you know, all of those things. Well, in the community too, you know, um, yeah. in especially in the pandemic when people were trapped in their homes, just the the ability and the opportunity to check in with other human beings, you know, before and after class. Um, and, and since coming back to the studio where things have opened up, again, that ability to share energy with other human beings, I feel like the pandemic really taught us a lesson about human interaction. I feel like um, you're doing with Pilates what you used to do with social work. 100%. And I have said that before. Um, I have I have said that before in other um, in other meetings and in other introductions that social work and Pilates uh, teaching Pilates are very 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 similar. You're you're teaching people, you're empowering people, you're trying to help them live better lives. It is very very similar. Uh, all right, so we talked about finding your tribe and how that you know gave you confidence to give yourself permission to try to think differently to experiment uh and then you know thinking about thinking deeply about what your product is and realizing that it's it's empowering people through movement and giving them options and that and this community and basically i mean what you've described to me i mean in my limited understanding just sounds like a description of social work right if we take out the exercise part um <laughs> um and all right, so tell so right. So let's talk nuts and bolts for a minute. Like, what do you say? Right, so if you're not teaching alignment, you're not teaching core activation, you're not teaching posture analysis, you're not telling people when to breathe. It's like, okay, well, what does it mean to be a good teacher then, <laughs> in your view? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think in order to be a good teacher, and again, this is something that I learned in. Uh, at Breathe was how do people learn best, especially when it comes to motor learning. And again, this wasn't something that that they teach you, I feel like, in, in just conventional Pilates training programs. They don't teach people how, um, they don't teach instructors how to teach well. They just, really, it's just memorizing things and parroting things. And so for me, um, some of the things that made a big difference, uh, external cueing versus internal cueing. I mean, and again, I feel like you've probably had many, many conversations about this um, already. But, you know, with the external cueing, I think for me, in terms of burnout, we'll just use that as a, a good um, foundation is internal cueing is so mentally exhausting. For me, so, so that's when you're cueing when you're cueing people what to feel in their body or which muscles to activate. And exactly, kind of which yeah. muscles to activate, what you sh where you should be feeling it, what it's doing, what this exercise is for, why we do this exercise, which muscle imbalance we're you know all that stuff. Like all of the stuff that honestly I I'm not supposed to be saying anyway because I'm not trained as a physiotherapist as a physical therapist, so I'm supposed to stay in my lane anyway. But I was expected to know somehow. Um, but you know, internal cueing is mentally exhausting. Um, and 
probably not 100% true most of the time, especially for people in all of the ways that they move and the things that are already happening in other parts of their lives and bodies. Um, so external cueing was a huge one for me, just being able to simplify how to do an exercise, which made it easier, not just for the client, but honestly just made it easier for me as a teacher. Right. Like, yeah, now, um, so that was, that was a really, really big thing. And it was funny because, um, you know, I'd been teaching for a really long time and doing lots and lots, only internal cueing really. And then, um, when I started doing my practice teaching for breathe, I, because it was a pandemic, I was mostly teaching my husband and my two teenage kids and external cueing was the way to go. <laughs> you know, like they just, they did not do Pilates. And so just being able to say, okay, push out, <laughs> you know, <laughs> stretch the springs, lift the straps to the sky. Like that was just so much easier I found. Um, and that was a huge light bulb moment for me. Uh, the other thing that really helped was to understand um, injury and pain science. So I, I, I'd mentioned that again, going back to burnout, part of my burnout was feeling this extreme pressure to know all of the, the, pathologies in the body and how to how to identify them how to fix them what exercises were best what exercises to avoid is a lot it's a lot of um it's impossible to know all those things and i felt so much pressure to do it particularly with my hospital students um so having a better understanding of how to work with people who have injuries and chronic pain having um a decent understanding of current pain science and the biopsychosocial model, all of those things really helped to make me a more confident teacher. And I really feel like the lesson I learned in all of this is fearful teachers create fearful students. And I know one of your big taglines is fearless movement. And, you know, for me, I couldn't empower my students without being empowered myself. And I couldn't ask them to have fearless movement if I was so fearful that I was going to hurt them or if they were going to hurt themselves in Pilates. So that was a really big thing was just the understanding of pain science and working with people with injuries, working with people with um, who are pregnant. Um, one of my biggest fears in teaching a group class is having people with injury coming into my class, having somebody brand new, not knowing what to do with them, um, working in a, in a mixed class where I had advanced students, people who had been taking Pilates for a long time, and then a brand new student coming in. Those are not things that I was taught. I don't know that, uh, I don't know that many Pilates teachers are taught in that way, like how to, how to work with a mixed class. So being able to, learn what I like to call, you know, breathes way of layering exercises, um, how to sequence things, all of those things that just, it just made such a world of difference for me to be able to be more confident in, in just walking into a room and not worrying so much about who was going to end up in my class. Mm. I think those are the main things. Um, it's funny, like, 
you know, a lot of a lot of what you described is essentially just doing less. You know, it's in some respect it's doing things differently, like external queuing versus internal queuing, but that also involves a lot less talking, a lot fewer cues generally. And, you know, a lot of what you do for people with injuries is just let them get on with moving and not worry about it. Um, and, yeah, so it's 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 interesting to me that uh, it's a lot easier doing it that way because it actually is less, literally less effort <laughs> than, 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 uh, than I think most people assume it is. Like, I think most people assume the inverse, that, you know, the more sort of complicated somebody's medical history or whatever, the more complex the intervention needs to be and the more complicated your queuing and programming and whatever needs to be. Whereas in reality, no, nah, they'll be fine with footwork and some roll-ups the same as everybody else. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah. You know, the other thing that um, uh, the your breathe instructors do really, really well that I implemented really early on um, when I started the, the certificate program was um, just the use of praise and um, saying people's names, that's so easy, right? And that's just something that was just, I wasn't doing that, like not using people's names very much, um, not praising. I feel like conventional Pilates is really deficits-based. You know, you're looking for your, my job as a Pilates teacher is to look for weaknesses and imbalances and fix them. Whereas um, the other way to look at it is what are they doing right and praise them yeah. for it. Yeah. And, 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 and it also made such a huge like, difference. The the I think traditionally Pilates thinks of people as bodies, you know, right. like teach the body in front of you. And when I was in Stop Pilates Land, people used to have to bring someone like a, a, a another person for their exam to be their, you know, in quotes, client. And we referred to that person as the body, you know, will you be the body for me in my exam? And it's like, no, there's a fucking brain inside that body. You know, and that brain's got thoughts and emotions and makes meaning out of things and has expectations and previous experience that shape, you know, how they approach the present situation. And yeah, so we have this sort of, you know, like we have a deficit mindset and we have a very mechanistic or very physical mindset. It's like we're teaching a body, you know, and we're here to find what's wrong with the body. It's like, well, yeah, what about finding what? awesome about the human right and you know i mean i I feel like i mean and again this is a podcast for another day but just i really do feel like there is a reason why in the pilates world we we tend to over medicalize and pathologize things i feel like there's a commercial element to it it what it's what a lot of pilates studios will market as why you should come do pilates is we will help you fix your posture, which will then make you a superstar person or, you know, whatever. Um, I, th- but- I think I think of it in, yeah, I think of it in similar terms, but I would phrase it differently. I think, uh, and I don't mean this in any kind of disrespectful way. If you're out there teaching posture and whatever, I've been there, my hand's up in the air right now. Like I've Same. taught hundreds of people how to teach posture and I've, mm-hmm. you know, Oh, so I've been there. I don't judge um, because I've got a, I've got a log in my eye. Um, yes. Uh, but I, I see it as really sort of basically like small profession syndrome. 
and I've seen it in other professions like chiropractic and uh, osteopathy and um, to a certain extent naturopathy and massage where basically, you know, we see in the health professions that, you know, medical doctors and particularly specialists are you know, right at the top of the totem pole. You know, if you're an ophthalmologist or obstetrics, you know, person or orthopedic surgeon, you know, you, you have letters after your name and you are, the, your word is law. Okay. And if you're a physiotherapist, well, you're a lot further down the totem pole than a, you know, orthopedic surgeon, but you're still, you know, somewhere up there. Uh, and then if you're like, when I, you know, look down at sort of say chiropractic and osteopathy, maybe, uh, and I, maybe it's different in the US, but I'm in my experience in Australia, maybe like uh, two decades ago, those were not well-known professions and they weren't very mainstream, but I think they've both done a great job of becoming mainstream in the public's view because like most chiropractors that I have worked with, like they present themselves in a very medical way. Uh, you know, like a lot of them wear like actual white jackets um, and, you know, their, their clinics are full of, you know, spine models and, you know, muscle diagrams and things that you would expect to see in an orthopedic surgeon's office. And, you know, osteo- osteopaths call, you know, refer to themselves as doctor. Um, and, you know, so there's a whole, and again, not a criticism. I think that it's, it's great. It's a great, it's great marketing. And I don't say that uh, as a negative thing. I see marketing as a positive these great marketing for those professions that have, they have legitimized themselves as mainstream kind of allied health professions by acting the part. Um, whereas, um, and I think Pilates to a certain extent, you know, is struggling with that same mindset. But the thing is that in the process of doing that and trying to be like, you know, quote medical, we've actually like changed what Pilates is because Joseph was not into cueing muscles or, you know, like so many of these, he wasn't afraid of movement. He wasn't into isolating movements or he was into just whole body vigorous exercise and you'll figure it out as you go. Um, so I think we've fundamentally changed Pilates a lot of the time and, and turned it into something that it actually doesn't need to be. And ironically, isn't actually more helpful, you know, for the people that we're trying to help. 100% Raf. I, I agree with that so much. And I think for me too, I, I'm, and I just want to be clear that, you know, I think there's a place for Pilates and rehab. I mean, I myself am using Pilates to try to rehab myself. Um, there's a place for it. And I think there are lots of Pilates teachers who know their stuff and they know what they're talking about. But what I found for me, and again, this kind of goes back to the burnout thing, which is I, I was able to give myself permission to let that go. I don't have to know every single muscle and every single joint and every single pathology to be a great movement teacher, to to get people to feel better um, after they've come to see me. There are plenty of people um, all around the world. And these days with Zoom, you can, you know, you can talk to physical therapists and physiotherapists on Zoom anywhere now. There are plenty of people who can rehab specific injuries and muscles. And for me, um, just kind of going back to what my personal mission is, is to just be a great group Pilates teacher and get people to experience what I did going to group class, which is just 50 minutes of focusing on feeling good in my own body. I don't need to do anything else and to, to, Figure that part out was the biggest 
success I've ever had is just letting go of all the stuff that was that was worrying me because like you said it, it at the end of the day it doesn't make that much more of a difference in helping people feel better and to just honestly to just get them wanting to move more and really for me that's a win you know like you could be doing anything right now but you're here in my class we live in Seattle there's so much to do you can go out on the lake and uh, swim or paddleboard or whatever. You don't have to be in the studio with me, and yet you're here. Like, or right. you could just be on the sofa. Or you could be at the Netflix. fish markets, getting exactly. donuts, or visiting the original totally. Starbucks, or going up into that exactly. tall tower that you can rotates around. The Space Needle, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You could be doing any of those things, and so the fact that that I'm just kind of it still baffles me that people are you know taking time out of their day to come to class because I think that's so great. Like you're moving your body, you're doing something good for yourself, and that's. That's a win. To me, that's mm. a win. I don't care what you look like in my class. I don't care if you nail any of the exercises. Um, I just, it's, it's so, it's really an honor to just have people come to my class because they could be doing literally anything else. You sound pretty inspired right now. Yeah. Well, I haven't, <laughs> I have not been teaching. I've been on medical leave and I haven't been teaching. And so like talking about it, I do miss my students. And that's, that's the other thing too, that I, I haven't, talked about um but is a huge side effect of finally finding my voice and finding my confidence as a teacher is for the first time ever i have been able to really enjoy teaching my class like feeling when i leave my shift when i finish my teaching my class my class or my classes that i'm feeling energized and inspired that never happened to me i would finish a shift and I would literally go home, hop in bed and not talk to anybody for hours because I just felt like I talked too much and I thought too much. Um, and, you know, part of this change for me is truly loving being in class, teaching, having fun with my students. I always really enjoyed my students, but I never really, really appreciated enjoy and enjoyed them because in the back of my mind, I was constantly thinking, okay, what am I going to do next? What am I cueing next? Oh, I don't want to forget this cue and I better not forget about this. And all oh, that person has a knee injury. I, you know, those things are just no longer issues for me. So just being able to be fully present with my students and just having fun with them too has made such, um, has, has been a huge difference. You found your flow. Yeah, I found my flow. I want to touch, uh, just to finish, before we finish, but as the last part of the conversation, I want to touch on uh, rehab uh, because you mentioned it there a couple of times. And so firstly, yeah, thanks for pulling me up on that, uh, that I'm not for a second suggesting that Pilates instructors shouldn't do rehab. You know, it's actually my, I have a business teaching Pilates instructors to do rehab. So I, I fully stand behind Pilates uh, as a useful modality for rehab. Uh, so I don't think we should stay in our lane. And I actually even don't even agree with you when you say we shouldn't be telling people which muscles they're working or whatever. I don't think that's a useful thing to do, but I don't think it's out of our scope. Um, uh, I think it, you know, we shouldn't be diagnosing medical conditions. Sure, we shouldn't be prescribing scans or drugs or you know things like that. But we, if we say, hey, this exercise is good for your XYZ muscle, I don't see that as any kind of scope issue. Um, but anyway... That aside, so yeah, I, if you're out there doing rehab or whatever as a Pilates instructor, fucking go, go you, you're awesome. Uh, um, but I want to talk about your rehab. 
because uh, you mentioned that you're on medical leave and also that you're using Pilates for your own rehab. So tell us about that whole situation. Yeah, in uh, late December of last year, December 2021, I was diagnosed with early stage breast cancer. And after a lot of testing, um, my test results indicated to my medical team that I needed to have a, not needed, that I should highly consider having a double mastectomy. So I ended up having one um, late March of this year. So about, it'll be four weeks. I would, I will be four weeks post-op tomorrow. Um, so the first three weeks, and I think you know this too, Raf, because you are also rehabbing. Uh, the first three weeks, I was told by my doctor I couldn't do anything. I couldn't lift, push, pull, anything more than five pounds. I couldn't get my heart rate up or increase my blood pressure at all. And so um, last week was my third week post-op, and I have been just trying to get back into it, um, starting off slowly uh, working with a physical therapist who specializes with uh, breast cancer survivors. Um, and we are not, my physical therapist is not trained in Pilates. We're just doing very basic rehab stretches and um, ex strengthening exercises right now. But I have a reformer in my house. And so I've been slowly like dipping my toes back into the water, trying to figure out what feels good, what's weird, um, tr you know, just doing some basic exercises, just trying to get back into it. And so, um, yeah, I, I just feel so grateful to have this movement background and to have a, and, and to have a reformer in my house so that I can do some of these things because I know, um, how great Pilates would be for, for rehab. I, yeah. Yeah. What, um, I love, I love how you are embracing your own, uh, rehabilitation and, you know, like we said before, uh, even coaches need coaches and, you know, it's awesome that you've got a great physical therapist. I've got a physical therapist for my rehab. Um, even though I literally wrote a book on rehab, it's not the same coaching yourself through it as it is coaching someone else through it. Um, yeah. Uh, so that's, I think that's fantastic. And you know, but at the heart of, of rehab, it really is literally just graded exercise to, to restore strength, range of motion and control. And so right. when you've, when you've had a surgical wound, you know, the muscles, sometimes the tendons, the skin, the fascia, you know, have been severed and you've now got stitches and, and things in there that are not as strong as the original tissue. And so you just have to respect that. And then gradually over time, healing proceeds and the tissue becomes stronger and stronger and you need to stimulate that healing tissue by putting load through it, which actually uh, facilitates healing and improves the strength and pliability of the, of the resulting scar. But that is, uh, for the shoulder surgery that I'm rehabbing from, uh, is about a 12 month process because of the particular tissues that are involved, tendons and ligaments and things take that long to heal. Uh, I'm interested about the, the breast cancer process because I'm imagining it's going to be a shorter rehab process for you. Have they, what have I given you to expect in terms of the, the trajectory? 
You know, I, I can't answer that because I'm, I'm not finished with surgery yet. I, um, the healing from the double mastectomy is about six weeks. Mm -hmm. So if I, if I wasn't, if I wasn't doing reconstruction six weeks, um, I am, I should be able to return to my normal life, uh, with respect to, you know, what's happening in my body right now and trying to slowly progress back to my, my pre-surgery fitness level. Um, but I am having a second surgery that hasn't been scheduled yet. And so I, what my surgeon told me was that after that second surgery, I will need to take another three weeks off. But I think beyond that, like, like you said, it is, it is a shorter trajectory than what you're having to go through. I should be able to really get back to my, my life after that second surgery. I, I'd, I'd say within four to six weeks after that second surgery, I can continue to work towards my pre-surgery normal. It's a, it's a wonderful feeling. Like I'm, I'm about six weeks ahead of you. I think this is yesterday was 10 weeks since my surgery. And, uh, I'm, you know, so I, I well remember the sort of four week point. Um, and that, you know, that is a marvelous place to be because you're just coming out of this basically semi crippled state where you basically right. can't put on a t-shirt, you can't brush your teeth, you can't you know, pull your pants up. <laughs> There's so many things You're like, Oh crap, I can't brush my hair. <laughs> you know, like, um, and, and you know, even rolling over in bed, you're like, Oh, oh, oh. oh yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But you know, at, at about the four week mark for me, it was like all this, not all, not all of a sudden, but I started to be able to, you know, I first noticed, Oh, I just opened the kitchen drawer with my arm without thinking about it, you know, yeah. and I didn't have any pain and it was just a normal thing to do, you know, right. or I just put a t-shirt on and that didn't hurt or, you know, now I don't have to wear a button-up shirt. You know, I, I can right. put a shirt on over my head. Um, or, or I can brush my teeth with, with my right hand because it's really weird brushing your teeth with the other hand because everything's back to front. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's all of these things that you sort of completely take for granted when you're well that all of a sudden, like, you know, when you're contemplating surgery, you you know, you think about the, the risks of anesthetic, you think about the risks of the surgery going badly, of... Uh, you know, the, of the the pain that you'll have afterwards, but you don't think, oh, fuck, I won't be able to brush my teeth. You know, I won't be able to put my socks on. <laughs> I'll need help putting my pants on. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, I, I know. I, I get it. I, and, and you're right. Like, you don't know what you don't know. And I remember, you know, the, like you said, it's the, the first three to four weeks. Um, there are people... And I'm sure they they say this in other circles too, but you know we call it the hump. Like we're finally getting over that hump of really just being in a lot of pain all the time. And I, um, it was very uncomfortable. And and I think about a week post op, I wrote down on my phone. I was in a lot of pain one day, and I just started writing down all of the things I will never again take for granted. And some of those things included things like sneezing, mm. yawning, um, turning over in bed. One of the things that um, I was delighted about was that, um, you know, I I did the Breathe Cert for starting in August and I finished in February. My surgery was in March. And so I was truly in the best shape of my life having gone through all that uh, Pilates. And I was doing so much Pilates after I got home from the hospital because I couldn't use my arms 
Like you can't use, I couldn't use my arms. Things like, um, you know, if you're laying down in bed or if you're sitting on a sofa and you want to just scooch over, we don't even know like that we're using our hands to push into the sofa or the bed to scooch over. And I couldn't do that. And or like if you're lying down in bed and you have to get up off the bed, I mean, I, I tell people, try doing it without your arms. You're doing Pilates. Like I was do, literally doing teasers off my bed um, to get up because I could not use my arms. Exactly. <laughs> or, or roll downs to get into bed because uh, I couldn't use my arms. And I was telling my husband, I'm like, oh, my God, look, I'm look at all this Pilates that I'm doing. Like, look how strong I am. Like, because I just I just came from, you know, this training. It was just perfect timing. I had I, I didn't plan for it to be that way. I had no idea that this was going to be my life when I signed up for the program. And honestly, I think if I had known, I probably would not have signed up mm. for for the cert. But um, it was just, it was just such a gift to be able to be so fit, uh, coming off of that, uh, program, but also to have just a lot more wisdom and clarity about pain and about, um, being optimistic and about not being so fearful, like all of those things that, um, that were taught as instructors to teach to our students really helped me in my own recovery. It was, it was great. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is really empowering, you know, the feeling of exercising and reclaiming or rediscovering the ability to move. And, you know, I mean, you and me both love exercising. I'm assuming everybody who listens to this loves exercising and when that's taken away from you, like you said, you couldn't basically couldn't move your arms for three weeks. Yeah, I was the same. It's like you literally can't move your arm. And uh, but now I'm able to move my arm. And as I see you on social media, you're doing long stretch on your knees, and you know, like all kinds of really awesome. You know, I can see you getting stronger, like day by day. Um, well, you don't post every day, but you know, three days by three days, um, and. I just know how great that feels when you can add another spring or take a spring off or go another six inches further out than you did before. And you're like, oh, that is such a beautiful feeling when you regain that range and that strength and you start to feel yourself improving every time you 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 get on the machine. And I think that is what we give to our clients every day. You know, that is a truly, you know, if you're rehabbing somebody, even if it's not like a quote, clinical situation, if it's just a group class and it's somebody who's come in who's had a sore knee for years or whatever, right, which we all have in our classes, it's like recovering that strength and range of motion and control of that limb and the trust in that limb and the strength of your body is such a powerful experience that like you can see why people would send you boxes of chocolates and, you know, gratitude notes five years later and, and stuff like that. It's because it's so powerful for people, for people, what we do. And it all comes from, you know, providing that those things, like you said, you know, the, 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 the inspiration, the accountability, the social support, the options, the motivation, you know, all of those encouragement, et cetera. Like that's, but those things are the product and it's, 
but they're such a fucking powerful product. Like we literally can change people's lives. Absolutely. Well, and you know, I, I am living it in my own body. I'm testing out my own product because, you know, the other thing um, that you didn't mention that you've mentioned before is the reassurance. And for me going into surgery and telling myself literally as I'm (laughs) stepping onto the operating table, I am, uh, you know, my body is strong. My body is resilient. My body is anti-fragile. I'm going to be all right. Like I yeah. like just telling myself over and over again made such a huge difference because I think my recovery is so much better because I'm not afraid Yeah. or, and, and actually that's, that's gone too far. It's not that I'm not afraid. I'm just less afraid. I have so much more confidence in my body's ability to bounce back um, and to be resilient and to adapt to the things that have happened to me that, you know, are arguably permanent, but I think I'll be all right because the body adapts. I'll figure it out. Just keep doing those mermaids, which by the way is really the hardest exercise. I, I was telling my friend um, I had, I was so surprised getting on the machine and doing a mermaid because mermaid for me is, is a warm up or a cool down in my Pilates classes. And when I got on the machine and I was doing mermaids, that was the hardest <laughs> exercise for me right now. It still is like I'm, I'm getting, on, I, I've been getting on the reformer a couple times a day just to do a few mermaids here and there to work on my range of motion. It is so humbling. Um, cause I guess you're stretching not just the pectoral and the wound site, but you're also just stretching like everything around it in all directions, like the torso is moving, the shoulders moving, yeah. Everything. Yeah. It's yeah. just a full body experience in all of the, in all of the, my biggest restrictions happen in mermaid, the mm. side bending, the, <laughs> the shoulder abduction, It's funny all that, that you say that because, you know, my surgery was on my shoulder, obviously, and yours was on your chest wall. But I've just this morning, like just before we recorded, I was down in my basement doing a workout and I was doing uh, like a cable mermaid, like I basically a light weight on the end of a cable and in a side bend and then just like working that. And I just actually, uh, my physio, Adam Meekins, he gave me just a pull down move. He said, you know, just pull on this. And so to stretch your shoulder up into, into flexion. So you get your arm overhead eventually. And I was just in there and I just was playing around with it and I started bending my torso sideways and I was like, Oh my God, that feels so awesome. <laughs> and yeah, so it was like, yeah, that was so much, so much, a much more powerful position even though my surgery is in a different place and my chest wall wasn't affected by my surgery at all but it's like it still was like oh yeah I can really feel the tightness as soon as I go into that side bend uh yeah so um I'm with you on the mermaids there are there are there are a vitamin pill on steroids for uh for upper torso rehab oh my gosh 100 (laughs) percent um Natalie this has been such an amazing conversation I really thank you uh, you know, uh, and I, I guess, well, actually before we finish up, like, is there anything else, you know, you, here you are, you've got a, you've got a 300 foot tall billboard, you've got 200,000, you know, people listening, like, is there anything else you want to share? No, I don't think so. I think we covered everything. Just thank you for having me. This is so cool that you're, uh, you know, Pilates Elephants is my favorite podcast and the fact that I get to be here with you is really, really awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, 100% right back at you. You're awesome. And uh, I'm 
you know, stand in amazement and admiration of uh, what you've done and what you're what you're undertaking right now. So, um, you know, I'm a very big fan. I know a lot of us are at Breathe Education. So um, we we actually have a a weekly meeting uh, we called Student Success Heroes, and basically uh, where we talk about uh, student success stories. Like we talk about, okay, what's what's a story about an awesome student doing something really awesome this week? And we uh, everybody has to nominate a student. Uh, and uh, you were my nomination a couple of weeks back um, because of, well, I guess a lot of the stuff that we've talked about already on today's conversation, but just uh, really your cognitive agility and your optimism and your gratitude and your willingness to reach out to others and help and contribute uh, to other people's progress and development, like roping your friend Joy, and I forgot the other friend's name. Um, What was the other friend that you roped in? Joy and Lindy. Yeah. Yeah. So Joy actually did the, I don't know if you remember this, but when you did the six-week anatomy course, Joy uh, was one of your students as well. Um, Shout out Joy and shout out Lindy. Yeah, Joy. Thank you. Um, and Lindy has really been, um, we have had so many conversations and debates and discussions about everything that has been on the podcast. And it's just, uh, you know, that's just a bonus. That was another bonus for me is uh, just having not just an international community, which has been amazing. It's been amazing to make friends and meet new people um, from around the world with the program, but to also strengthen my my relationships here. So um, that's been a huge benefit as well um, in this time that I've been kind of rediscovering my, my rediscovering why I wanted to be a teacher in the first place. And I do actually have one quick thing that I wanted to add, which is that, um, you know, when I was given the opportunity to do the the certificate, there were lots of reasons why I didn't need to do it. You know, I was already a Pilates instructor. It wasn't going to necessarily make me more money or give me more um, opportunities. I wasn't thinking about it in that way at all. I was really thinking about just the time investment. Like, did I really feel like I needed to do it? And I, I just, I'm so glad that I did because um, I, there were lots of things in the program that I already kind of knew, you know, I was already a Pilates teacher, but there were so many things. It's like you said, there are so many gaps um, in my own knowledge and my own experience that I, I had that just, I, I, I'm so glad. I'm so glad that I was able to do that program. And I'm glad that I, I decided to do it. Cause like I said, it, it took me a hot minute to decide whether or not it was going to be worth my time. And, um, is a hot minute a long time or a short time? What's that? Is a hot minute a long time or a short time? <laughs> a hot minute is a long, like it, it took me a while. Like I, it wasn't an immediate, oh yeah, I'm going to go ahead and do this. It, uh-huh. I was just like, I really got to think about whether or not I want to go through another training program because like I said, that first one was really traumatic for me. And it was, mm-hmm. it was me. It was me and, and just my insecurities and my, um, my own self-limiting beliefs about what I was capable of doing. Nah, it was them. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Natalie, thank you so much. Thanks, Raph. Good talk. After two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, 
I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist Rehabilitation. Inside the program, I'll teach you to do three things. One, deeply understand how the body works. Two, confidently and expertly rehab literally any client. And three, get results for your clients. So ultimately, your clients tell their friends and you become known as the go-to expert in your area. This program is completely unlike any education you've done before, even if you've studied with us before, because of the way we've built the learning design. It's an online, flexible, skill-based learning program, which means you keep doing the skills under supervision until you're good at them. It's more of a mentorship model than a traditional course model. So rather than rushing through the content and having sort of one go at everything, you actually just practice live and we give you feedback and guidance and we dialogue and explore concepts together until you're highly skilled and confident. We just keep working the material until you get it. It's not rushed at all. It's not about ticking off the content. It's about engaging, practicing and applying it until you own it. This is a life-changing program, not some weekend certification. I've put my heart and soul into building this, and I can't wait to share it with you and help you discover your genius for anatomy and rehab. Now, because of the highly interactive nature of this program, we're only taking on 12 students worldwide. The program starts on March the 1st, and the first 12 qualified people to apply will be allowed to enroll. So if you're interested in learning more, click the link in the show notes and download the course guide or go to breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification menu in our link in the top menu. That's breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification link in the top menu.